I'm your host, Sophia Sokolovsky, and this is 24 The People. My first memory of this week's guest was when she introduced herself six years ago and said, my name is Jeanne, like son. And that statement could not have been more accurate. My friend and fellow Wellesley woman, Jeanne Gallet, is an absolute light. In case you can't tell, I love saying her name. She was raised in Seattle, is a budding trilingual, and runs a food blog on flexitarianism. We both gave TEDx Talks our senior year of college, and I remember our practice sessions together were far more enjoyable than they were nerve-wracking. When I went to Boston this past month, Instead of bopping around like we usually do, we sat down to talk about what drives her. Her passion lies in combining the practice of research with patients in a hospital setting. And she's doing that now at Massachusetts General Hospital while simultaneously pursuing her PhD at Harvard University and serving as co-president of the organization Harvard Graduate Women in Science and Engineering. Her research is clinically focused in the area of aphasia, which I must admit, I didn't know a great deal about before our conversation, but Jeanne made sure that was not the case after this interview. Aphasia affects about 2 million Americans. Listen in as Jeanne and I discuss the challenges patients and their families face, recognizable symptoms that can signal someone has aphasia, and how her research is reshaping treatment outcomes. My name is Jeanne Gallet. I am a graduate of Wellesley College. I graduated in 2016 with a double major in Cognitive and Linguistic Sciences and Psychology. And I am currently entering my third year of my doctoral program in Speech and Hearing, Bioscience and Technology. What does that mean, Speech and Hearing, Bioscience and Technology? It's quite a mouthful, but it is an engineering program where you have the opportunity to focus on either speech and language, or hearing through the means of neuroscience. How did you discover that you were passionate about this area? Language has fascinated me from an early age. I grew up in the U.S., but I didn't learn English inside the home. And it was mostly through the playground where I realized that everyone else was not speaking German, which was what I grew up with. And wunderbar. Wunderbar. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, it just always fascinated me from an early language, seeing all the idiosyncrasies in language. And it was always just fascinating to see how even when two people are fluent in a language, they can be completely misunderstanding one another. And I always, I think I was drawn to the field of linguistics from an early start because of that. My parents once asked me how I wanted to apply that. Um, during undergrad. And I didn't quite know. And I always knew that I was interested in research, but I also really wanted to work with people. When you primarily do research, Mm -hmm. at least in my mind, I think of it being a solo, isolated process. Right. But you work with people. And so Mm -hmm. it's difficult kind of making that change from research and working with people. How how were you Mm -hmm. able to do that? And how did you figure out that that was the right thing for you? I think senior year, I stumbled into it by luck, um, by sheer luck, because I really knew I was drawn in so many different directions. I mean, I entered college really 
thinking that I wasn't going to college beforehand. Um, what were you planning on doing instead? I was training to be a professional dancer, a professional ballerina. I had spent most of my summers at Boston Ballet, coming from Seattle to get my name out to train. And then um, my dad used that as an opportunity to also introduce me to the life of academia. And that's actually how I ended up at Wellesley too. By the time senior year hit, I realized that I also had to find something to do again. It's interesting because ballet, you use your body and movement to tell a story, mm-hmm. whereas now you're doing something where it's it's purely about the verbal and the linguistic aspect of being able to communicate your thoughts to someone else. And I think that's actually a perfect segue too to what I find so interesting with working with people with language deficits, because you do end up using your body to communicate. You use nonverbal communication strategies to get your points across. And right now, something that I'm super interested and involved in too is support group therapies too, where you have couples coming in and you might do things such as music therapy together to find a way to uh, reestablish a connection between the couple where their communication style and patterns have been greatly disrupted by the onset of any type of language disorder. Beforehand, your husband, your wife, your partner is the person you come home to to speak to. Yes. And all of a sudden that avenue has been closed or very much altered. These types of therapies really do reestablish those types of connections and can also tap into something else. There's a new field of music therapy that found that it's actually harder for people to go against a rhythm than to go with it. And so that can be used for learning how to walk again. That can be used for learning how to speak again or to speak in full phrases. And it's really remarkable how we can tap into all these other resources in our brains to then access something that we might have lost. Are the couples who you see recommended through a therapist, are they typically, first of all, their communication has been disrupted, but are they also going through this emotional burden? Do you see that act out in the sessions that you have with them? So the support group that I'm currently involved in is for patients with primary progressive aphasia. And that is an atypical variant of dementia or Alzheimer's, where the primary symptom that you have the first two years is just a loss of language in any type of modality. If it's speaking, auditory comprehension, writing, or um, reading. And these patients normally notice at first is that they aren't communicating the way they did before. And people usually write it off as something else or don't really notice it because they know their partners. And then one day, the symptoms get to the point where they might end up at a neurologist who then refers them to the specialists once they do these types of cognitive testing. Can you define aphasia for us? So aphasia is any type of disruption to language within the domains of reading and writing, speaking and listening. Um, That could be due to a multitude of issues with the brain. The primary source of aphasia is stroke. So 85% of people with aphasia have it due to stroke. And then the remaining 15% can be due to any type of traumatic brain injury, can be due to cancer, um, or any type of neurodegenerative disease like primary progressive aphasia. Do you see aphasia in specific cancer patients? Do you have to have a specific type of cancer in order to develop it? Um, It's usually not one specific type, but it usually is a very aggressive form where the cancer has reached the languages dedicated to language. Can you develop aphasia over the course of your life? For example, if you had another disease, could that be a gateway to developing aphasia? I think, I should say, I don't know. I think the primary source of a progressive type over the course of your lifetime would be due to a neurodegenerative disease. 
Um, otherwise, aphasia is acquired through a one-time injury mm-hmm. or if you have any type of surgery that then affects that area of the brain. Or Alzheimer's as well. Right. You do a, a great deal of work with Alzheimer's patients. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to that? So that has been a recent development too, which has been really exciting for me to see how I can be involved in all these different types of worlds through this one subject. And I think coming from a liberal arts college and having such a different background to beforehand um, in terms of career aspirations, I think that is something I'm well suited to is really dabbling into lots of different things at the same time. Um, And so it's been incredibly exciting to be at the frontotemporal dementia unit at Mass General Hospital. I've been working there for a clinical placement, which is required for the speech language pathology track. So I should back up and say my concentration area within the speech and hearing bioscience and technology program is the speech and language pathology track. So I focus primarily on any type of speech and language disruption due to a neurological trauma or disease. Mm -hmm. And that within that, I am focusing to also gain my clinical certification in speech language pathology. So My primary coursework is over at Harvard, and then I take all the clinical certification courses at the Institute of Health Professions from MGH. You go. I love that. It's really impressive. Can you talk about speech and language therapy and what that entails? Mm -hmm. Speech and language therapy is very unique to each individual, too, because one, there are certain techniques that work for each type of disorder, but you also have to see what would be relevant for someone. Um, based on their own personal interests, what they like to talk about, and their age. You can talk about politics or incorporate that into a Mad Lib exercise. For example, for a 60-year-old patient, that wouldn't be appropriate for a five-year-old who is just beginning to acquire world knowledge or vocab or anything along those lines that would require him to finish that. What's a Mad Lib exercise? Is that so, just riffing off of something? So or? that yeah, so a Mad Lib exercise is when you have the fill in the blanks and you have to find certain words that would be um, appropriate in terms of a type of category. Okay. So that is one way to just work on speech and language knowledge to access to vocab. Okay. So I, I guess what I would say for the typical type of therapy um, that you would see for aphasia, you focus on word retrieval. So even though there are countless variants of aphasia that can be, there are certain types due to stroke. A lot of people have heard of Broca's or Wernicke's. And then there are all the types of neurodegenerative variants. The main symptoms across all of them is issue naming objects. And that is one type of symptom where you can very clearly say, okay, it seems like there's an issue with the language here. So for example, I'm holding my iPhone in my hand. Someone would have difficulty identifying this as an iPhone. Exactly. Or Um, describing the place that they went to the other day or naming the route that they took off the highway or where they even live. That can be difficult. Is it all short-term or can they remember things such as where they were born and things from their childhood? It depends. It can vary. Usually the things that are more meaningful to you are more salient. So you'll remember them for longer. So it's more likely that they'll forget the name of the one restaurant that they went to the other day in the beginning, but always remember their mother's name. Um, But I have encountered patients who also are unable to retrieve the name of the place that they live at times as well. It depends on the individual. Are there any patients who you've worked with who you can talk about who stood out to you or whose story you found especially rewarding working with them? So I went into the field of aphasia thinking that I would be spending most of my time with the more geriatric population. So with older adults, 
just based on the people that I knew. They weren't having strokes. So I was assuming I would be working with people ages 70 and up. And actually, the first patient I got to observe at um, a hospital was 19 years old. And that to me was utterly striking that imagining being in his shoes, all of a sudden, you know, you're on the brink of life and then not being able to communicate or interact in the world as you could before. Absolutely debilitating. What struck me is that he was just a regular guy. He had just graduated from high school and had a massive motorcycle accident. And the way he flew off of his bike, his brain ricocheted back and forth in his skull, meaning he had multiple injuries and also to his body itself. So here's a guy who now has aphasia because of his head injury. He also has broken both of his arms and has his jaw wired shut because of the injuries to his face as well. Okay. So he is unable to communicate as he was able to before physically and cognitively. So even trying to assess him to see his status of language was difficult. Could Um, you equate his injury in the brain to a bruising of the brain or was it more of a puncture when you say that it's... So he had a cerebral hemorrhage. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that was just an internal bleeding that caused chaos, a huge attack on his brain. And all of a sudden he couldn't write in the same way before. So because both of his hands were broken, he had a contraption where he could stick his fingers through to then hold a pencil upright and could kind of move his elbows back and forth in order to answer certain things. But that was the only way that That he could communicate. Because his jaw was wired shut and he had a neck brace. So that was one of the most surprising and complicated cases that just showed that this is not something that's unique to adults or older adults either. And what's even more striking is that 180,000 more Americans will be diagnosed with aphasia in this year. And so this is something, especially with our ever aging population, but also for our younger um, populace, we have to be really aware of. Aware, yes. yes. Concerned about. What can you talk about how his case was resolved, if it was resolved? I didn't actually get to see where he ended up, but I saw him on two visits. When you're working with patients, you sometimes grow emotional attachments or you I'm assuming that you, you do to a certain extent, right? Because it's part of your work and you're working with human beings. Mm-hmm. What are some of the the challenges that frustrate you that you come across and how do you overcome those obstacles? So I think one of the primary challenges with aphasia is that people don't have a label on them that says, I have aphasia. This is why I might sound different to you. That is one of the main issues with it too, is that you really can't tell. It's an invisible disease until someone starts opening their mouth. You might be able to tell that they've had a stroke due to a cane or one arm that might not be in use, but aphasia is a disease that is so uncommon to public knowledge that it can be really detrimental. It's a huge issue, for example, when people get pulled over, um, if someone isn't able to communicate where they're going or why they speak in the way that they do, can be very dangerous because that can immediately seem like they have been drinking or that they are on drugs or something else is going on. That can be very confusing and overwhelming. So one huge aspect of aphasia too is just creating public awareness. And so there is aphasia awareness month as well in June. And that can just provide resources to families and friends affected by aphasia, but also just to the general public. What are the 
questions that families tend to ask yeah. you once someone's been diagnosed or is go- undergoing treatment? Mm-hmm. What do families want to know mm-hmm. and how can they be supportive? There are two sides to this issue because there's the chronic type of aphasia and there's the progressive. And in the chronic phase, you do reach what can appear to be a plateau of recovery where progress in regaining your language isn't as quick as it used to be. And a lot of that is due to the brain swelling that occurs after any type of brain trauma, where as the swelling goes away, you start recovering function really quickly. But afterwards, it might seem like nothing's happening. And that's actually where a massive myth comes in, where a lot of doctors or people in general tell each other that after one year, after the stroke, you will no longer make gains, which is really untrue. You can be in aphasia treatment for years afterwards and make gains. I'm sure though, if you're told that it can be such a weight on your chest because you feel like you're, you're never going to be able to communicate. Exactly. Exactly. And so actually to that point too, the first time I went to a support group for people with aphasia post-stroke, there was a man speaking a lot and I was new and I didn't know anyone and I'd rushed in a bit late. So I hadn't had the chance to meet everyone. And it turns out he was actually a stroke survivor with aphasia who was 20 years out who at one point had almost been nonverbal, but due to the support provided at Mass General Hospital, had been able to regain so much of his vocabulary, of his grammar, to be able to formulate sentences, to participate in conversation. He barely had any moments where I would have been able to point that out if someone else hadn't told me. That's remarkable. Did he speak words that perhaps he couldn't remember or? So it's usually not predictable which words you won't remember. Um, It depends on context. It depends on how often you had been trying to retrieve certain words. Sometimes it's just sheer bad luck that that word that you're trying to get at isn't coming out. But the classic question that most family members have is, will my loved one be as they were before? And I would say no, because either way, your loved one has gone through a traumatic experience. With chronic aphasia, luckily, you do have the chance of regaining a lot. Um, and while you might formulate some comp- comp- while you might have some compensatory strategies like a picture book where you're able to point out certain pictures to quickly communicate what you're trying to say, have a card that says, "Hi, my name is so and so. I have aphasia. This is an issue with language. I need help to tell you what I want." So those things can be super helpful. On the other hand, if it's a progressive version, you aren't therapy isn't focused on making gains. Right. You're focusing on finding strategies to help them communicate as they lose language. I see. Okay. So that can be very difficult because alongside with this diagnosis of aphasia, you also have the other side of the impending progressive nature of the disease. Are aphasia and memory loss sometimes confused? Yes. You can have patients who think that they might have a form of primary progressive aphasia, but it actually is just early onset Alzheimer's. Because part of, I mean, participating in a conversation, you have to be able to remember certain things, remember names, and that can seem like it's just an issue with your language. Yeah, you're drawing from your knowledge base. Right, exactly. Whereas the main defining characteristic of primary progressive aphasia is that you only have language issues for around two years or more. So it is my absolute dream to be a researcher in a hospital setting while simultaneously practicing and working with patients and providing treatment, but also doing research with patients. Because it would be my all-time goal to find treatments that are adequate and well-suited to every 
version of a language disorder, if possible. I mean, yeah. I do think that might be a bit lofty of a goal. I think but... it's important to aim for that, though, because mm-hmm. if you have an incredible team alongside you, then mm-hmm. there's no telling. I think my main goal, too, is really to find a way to make every patient feel heard. Because I think it's unrealistic to aim for perfection. No one will be back to where they once were. But there are ways to make someone feel more comfortable, to make them feel like they can function in their everyday life and feel supported and feel heard. How would I know that I was coming across someone in my life who had aphasia? What are some of those telltale signs that perhaps we think are another type of disorder or disease? It can be really hard. Because it honestly just can be that someone has to cue themselves before they start speaking. I know a man who counts on his fingers before he's able to produce the actual number he wants to say. Or someone might be unable to put together a full, complete sentence. I think this is more reliant upon people's skills than knowing about the disease. If someone is really trying to communicate with you, there's a pretty good chance that they might have a disorder. Or it's that. about being observant and empathetic enough to and take the time to, yes. And listening. And I'm also curious, what was something that you weren't expecting that you've learned from this process and from going through these first few years of schooling? I think, and I think anyone who works with patients can attest to this, that it never is as easy or straightforward as it is made up to be. You can have what seems to be the simplest assessment And if you have a patient who doesn't feel like doing the testing, or if you are unable to communicate to them in a way that will make the process go smoother, it it won't happen. And it's like that with so many things. Things always take longer. Things are always more complicated. And I think one thing that really always stands out to me is that, yes, it's important to have the clinical knowledge, but if you can't work with people, you won't get anywhere. If you, on a personality Mm -hmm. level, do not mesh well with the patient? Is there someone who was able to come into play and take over in that sense? I'm still in training. So there yeah. is always someone in the room with me. Okay. But the nice thing to remember too is that you are working with people where something is going on neurologically. Yeah. It's not them. And if it is, that's okay. I understand it. If I wasn't able to communicate the way I was used to be able to or if I was really scared about my diagnosis, I wouldn't want to be doing all this type of testing. I wouldn't be as open to it as, you know, I might be on a better day. I think you just have to have a thick skin and recognize the patient's story and what it took for them to even come to that doctor's room or to the support group to make it there. And these patients go to great lengths to make it to the support groups that they do. Mm-hmm. Some take two ferries, some drive in from Maine, some wow. fly in from Kentucky. So they want to be there. And if they are showing any type of hesitation or are unhappy in the room, I think it's my job and whoever else is with me to make them feel more comfortable. What was the best piece of advice that your mentor gave you? Sometimes it's better just to smile. The research that you're doing is of the utmost importance and it's making a difference in these people's lives. Thank you. I couldn't do it without the support of my lab and my advisors and I'm so thankful to be where I am. Thank you for sharing your story, Sean. Thank you, Sophia. You can email Jeanne at jgalay at g.harvard.edu and you can find her on Twitter at Jeanne1Galay. 
To learn more about 24 The People or to reach out to me, visit www.24thepeople.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at the number 24 The People. My name is Sophia Sokolovsky, and until next time, 